A reading from Acts. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was sent to be slaughtered. And like lamb silent before his shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can, desire the, who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak. The starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azatos, and he was passing, as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from John. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loves us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has shown for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this way, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, 
because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or a sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. And just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. The Gospel of the Lord. Alleluia, Christ is risen. risen Please be seated. Remember that we have these 50 days of Easter. We didn't just celebrate it one day, 50 days until Pentecost to contemplate what the resurrected life is really about and how we're to embody it ourselves knowing we won't quite get it this year, we'll get another chance to do it next year. And um, here this week, we've, we've changed, last week as well, from events that happened after chronologically the resurrection of Jesus to teachings that quite frankly, I don't know if they make no sense, but certainly they make a lot more sense with the resurrection event in mind, what the good shepherd is like, what it's like to abide in Christ, the true vine, as branches. And I'm going to hold up for you that you're going to see the genius of the lectionary today. Some weeks it is veiled. And I mean, we see through it very dimly. But this week, I think it is genius because apart from the lectionary, it would be very easy to hear the gospel, frankly, as condemning. I am the vine, you are the branches. Stay in me, have a lot of fruit, or you get chopped off, thrown into the fire and burned up. Of course, we know Jesus is talking about hell, and you go there forever unless you bear a lot of fruit, which starts to become really scary. Like, what kind of fruit do you need to have, and how much is enough? Well, I mean, paying your pledge is fruitful, so you should do that, right? And uh, coming to church every Sunday and listening to my magnificent sermons is great. You should keep doing that. Uh, But seriously, folks, when is enough enough? genius of the lectionary is it does not allow us to settle into this reading that quite honestly reinforces our fear of God. It does not allow us if we take the rest of the readings 
seriously because in 1 John we hear true love drives out all fear. If we're afraid that God is fundamentally going to throw us into hell because we don't do enough fruit-making, we don't love God. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? And we have not received God's love for us, which offers to drive out from us the fear of punishment. How does this work then with vine growing? I mean, there is this bit about pruning branches. And I will tell you, um, I'm not a botanist, but my dad is. (laughs) And uh, how interestingly, um, there are branches in plants, as you know, that do not bear fruit. They start to become wood and are dead, and nonetheless, even though nothing's happening to them, there's no new life forming, they do detract from the overall energy the plant is able to give the branches that would produce life. So the master gardener prunes those off so that the energy can be directed only towards life and fruit instead of wasted in things that will only result in death and discord. We lived in San Diego. Somebody had gifted us with a 50-year-old orange tree. We bought this house. We didn't plant it. We didn't cultivate it. It bore oranges every year. And interestingly enough, the orange plant or tree would throw out some limbs each year that had thorns on them. Has anybody ever seen this happen before, an orange tree? Um, my dad said something about them being mutated growth. You know, and I don't know if that's right or not, but what I did know is if I didn't trim those off... <laughs> there would be less fruit for a number of reasons. The thorns would grow into fruit and there would be less energy for the plant to make some wonderful produce that I happen to enjoy. So what did I do as the amateur gardener? I trimmed them off for the sake of the fruit. Now a God that does not want us to be afraid of punishment surely trims off those places in our lives, frankly, that are embedded in fear, that are embedded in things like shame and guilt and anxiety, precisely so we can live larger lives. Surely that is a resurrection we could use this week. And then we have this Lovely vignette that happens after Pentecost from the book of Acts. It's our opening reading. See, chronology is not important to the people who composed the lectionary, only that we grapple seriously with what resurrection means so we can embody it ourselves. And in the story, what do you know? There's an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this is somebody who was forcibly castrated as a child. And In the Judaism of the day, that person was looked at as less than whole, less than human. Would not have been allowed into the precincts of the temple courts that other men would be allowed to go into. By the way, it's not just eunuchs. It's people with birthmarks. It's people with scars. The eunuch did not ask to be made a eunuch, I will assure you of this. Uh, This was something done, and we we often think eunuchs guarded harems. That's actually an Arabic convention that happened after the 7th century of our common era. Eunuchs, because they could have no children, it was believed that they would be more loyal to the monarch because they could not be loyal to their own lineage. 
Uh, and that sort of bears out. You, you, you read about Potiphar, likely a eunuch in the Joseph story, was believed to have profound allegiance to the Pharaoh, this one to Candace of the, of the Ethiopians. Um, there are historically elite fighting brigades made out of eunuchs. So you're imagining like the Delta Force is made out of eunuchs or the Navy SEALs because it was believed that they would have profound fidelity to the government. So here's this eunuch who's in this interesting position. He's a top-class official, and he's less than a human being. And Philip is drawn to him, and he explains the gospel, and then the eunuch asks this really interesting question, right? The eunuch, having heard God's good news in the person of Jesus, says, Look, there's some water. What's preventing me, a eunuch? a less than human being in your cultural perspective from being baptized. He's of course saying, is the good news good news for everybody or good news for just some folk? And of course the answer to his question, what's preventing him from being baptized is prejudice. (laughs) But he dares ask Philip, the person in the position who's just said, this is good news for everybody, he says, is it really good news for me? And then this duality of resurrection happens. It happens for the eunuch because the affirmative answer, he's baptized, means he has received exactly the same right as everybody else. He's now included as a whole human being for the first time in his religious life. The resurrection moment, of course, also happens for Philip, who gives life to someone he wasn't sure could hold it or bear it or receive it. In this story a eunuch who was cut off in two ways. Cut off from wholeness is now nourished by the resurrection fruit of Philip and allowed to believe the vine cares for him as well. Surely that is what resurrection looks like for us. These moments in which not only people receive new life, but we are able to produce fruit in keeping with that. Now that's very theologically broad, and I'd like to tell you three stories, one quite serious, and two, honestly, that may be a little bit silly about how this challenge might look for us. The first is that my first Episcopal priest was a fantastic lady. I was serving at a Methodist church and I went to church at the Episcopal church down the street at the 7.30 a.m. service because I really was drawn to her preaching and what I learned from her is that she had been ordained in the early 80s. This is when the ordination of women was really suspect in the Episcopal church. Now there are places and let's not fool ourselves, that are still struggling with this reality. Uh, In general, we've made peace with it. What I learned from her is that she, (laughs) upon being called as rector to a church, you know, there were people that categorically objected to women being priests. 
They would call her diminutively the priestess. Week after week, she would consecrate the wine, the bread, and offer it from her hands. And these people would come to the rail and refuse to receive communion from her because, as a woman, she was cut off from the priesthood of the vine. Of course, that's taxing and weighing. What I gathered from her, and I'm not sure, I don't want to sort of foolishly impose some sort of um, suffering on us. I don't want to do that. But what I gathered from her <laughs> is the difficulty of us being branches in a vine in which we might invite others and they don't invite us. The difficulty, frankly, of offering people fruit from the Lord's table who won't take it from our hands. What she decided to do week after week was to offer it. Did they turn around? Some of them, of course, not. Some of them stayed as long as they could so that they could oppose her offering it every single week. And she poured her life into inviting them just the same. I'm pretty sure she got the resurrection moment even though they didn't. Now a silly story. So I didn't want to make this sound easy because it's not. My last parish was in Coronado, California, which is really um, the crown jewel of not just San Diego, it is the crown of the U.S. Navy. So in a parish of this size, there were seven admirals, and you could count all the star levels you wanted. Four, three, three, two, two, one, one. Was that seven? I don't know. There were a lot of admirals. There were at least 25 captains. And you know what the Navy life could be like. And one day, we called as, remember I told you this is silly, we called as our guest preacher one day, the rector was out of town, I was the associate, and we called uh, the camp director from the Camp Allen of Southern California, which is Camp Stevens. She came and gave the sermon, and it was a fine sermon, I mean it really was quite good, and uh, there was one interesting thing about her in Navy Town, USA, she had had a stillbirth child about two years before, it was a late term, and as part of her recovering from the, the trauma or living with it, either way you look at it, she had tattooed the name of her daughter on her wrist. The day she preached, she wore short sleeves. So it was after the 10.30 service that I saw someone I consider a friend and a hero in many ways, um, three-star Admiral Ed Martin who spent a few years being tortured with John McCain at the Hanoi Hilton. And I asked him, Ed, what did you think of the sermon? Expecting a really fine response, you know. And Ed said, and you've got to give him a minute here. Ed said, to be honest, Mike, I spent most of the sermon looking at that tattoo on her wrist. And then he went, and Mike, means I've got to grow up, doesn't it? And that's why he's one of my heroes. <laughs> because he knew he had branches to be pruned off of him that were taking life not only from himself, 
but from other people. This is a man who was in his 80s and had every right to park exactly where he chose, and he refused to, and that, I think, is the resurrected life. Now, I promised you one other silly story. It's really silly, (laughs) because it turns out I happen to have a tattoo as well, and this week... um, I had one of those calls that you just hope you only have once in your career. You know, uh, um, I don't know if you know the kind of call. It was about 100 minutes long. I'm not kidding. It really was 100 minutes long of, um, I don't know what to say other than verbal assault. I mean, I've never been verbally assaulted like this, frankly, in my life, not for this duration. I thought I'd come to a good spot, and and the person who's not a parishioner here decided that they... um, were not satisfied, and so he called a, a member of our vestry to complain about how the priest is unpresentable at the parish because the priest has a tattoo. And three years ago, I didn't know if I'd been able to take that very easily. I want you to know because I actually do care about this person. <laughs> That's the thing, right? And, and sure, I can wash that off my back, but you know, because because I do care about her. I I lingered on this for a little bit, you know? And I'm pretty sure this thing about the vine and the branches is this this place where we find ourselves of, how do I invite somebody who would never actually receive my invitation? And of course the answer is I just keep inviting them. (laughs) Now, my hands may not be qualified to receive the fruit of the vine from God's table. They may not. But don't you see that if I cut this person off the vine because of our divergent appearances, I've done exactly what God does not do. Trim people off wholesale. So what do I do I hope I continue to say the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, and the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, even if my hands are not acceptable. First John tells us very carefully that if we don't love each other who we see, how can we love God who we don't? do think John also forgot to say that if we don't love ourselves who we live with every day, how can we love anybody else as well? I wonder if this is what abiding in a life-giving vine is like. Trimming off those pieces of ourselves that say, well, I've had a scar or a surgery or I happen to have ink on my skin, so I'm not good enough. I am positive God would like to trim those pieces of fear off of us. I'm also positive that if we can do that, then when we meet fears in one another, we are ready to get to the kernel, which is, I see you're afraid, and here's the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. (laughs) I see you're worried, and here's the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. We're ready not to retreat into our own fear, don't you see, but to move forward precisely because God has decided to love us as we are. And that enables us to love one another 
as we are. And resurrection then happens both ways. Not only when the excluded find themselves included, but when the included include the excluded. And all this bit about the vine and the branches, you know, as a young boy, I grew up in a tradition where we didn't drink alcohol of any kind, but you realize why you grow vines and branches. It's to make wine. Wine is a metaphor for joy. God has given us this cup of resurrection to drink because we might enjoy it. And I don't want this to sound silly because it's not. This spent, I spent a lot of my time this week <laughs> dealing with all this stuff that came up within me. And by the way, I usually fail. I probably did along the way a little bit, but today I'm pretty good. You know, um, I'll tell you, we need energy to live the resurrected life. We need energy. When I first came to the Episcopal Church, having grown up having communion four times a year, I thought, you know, how strange to do this every week. Won't that water it down and it'll mean less? <laughs> no. I I'm not sure I get it enough, you know, because there's this mystery that every week we take ordinary wine and actually bread that's not even ordinary often, I mean, it's really subpar, and we say, God, you know, you nourish our bodies with this stuff, but we need nourishment in our spirits. We need the kind of sustenance that the true vine gives the branches so that we can bear fruit. Fruit for whom? For a hungry world. 